Hello and welcome to this edition of the Emotion at Work podcast and I am incredibly excited today because I have a forensic linguist with me today. Um, now we'll talk a bit more about what um, for, what a forensic linguist is and what a friend, forensic linguist does um, but very much today in this episode we'll be focused on the role of language um, and what can both the language that we use and the language that, that um, people speak, what can that tell us about either them as individuals or how they feel um, and how do we link all of that back then to uh, to emotion and credibility and deception in the workplace. So without any further ado, let me welcome along our guests. So good morning and welcome Dr. Samuel Lana. Good morning, Hi. Sam. Hi, Phil. Great to see you. Great to see you too. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Are you? Yeah, very good. Yes, yeah, very good. Really excited. So I, I mentioned in my intro then that um, you are a forensic linguist and therefore we're going to kind of talk a lot about language. So let, let's start with the language part of it, if that's OK. Mm-hmm. So ha- what kind of got you into and um, being fascinated with and about language then? It's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I can pinpoint any one particular moment of thinking that's the thing that I need to know more about. I think mm. I always grew up being fascinated by language Um I remember being younger and just typing for hours, writing out from encyclopedias and dictionaries and just loving words and, and just always being fascinated with them and playing with them. Um, I guess a defining moment for me was was when I went to visit a friend um, at Lancaster University and uh, she was busy doing something. So I went with another friend to, to sit in on a linguistics lecture uh, when I was 18. And I just spent the hour sat in that lecture in absolute awe of, of what we were being told and, and how it was really? working. So I kind of gate crashed a lecture and thought, this is it. This, this is what I want to do. Um, so I, I got into doing my degree at Lancaster in linguistics. And from there, really, um, just everything that we covered was just fascinating to me. So I think there was probably just a natural inclination to language and, and being fascinated by language mm-hmm. rather than it being a specific decision that this is what I want to know more about. And you mentioned that you used to, when you were writing, you said you, know, you used to kind of go to places to find words. Were you writing, what were you writing? Were you writing stories or? A bit of everything really. I used to, to do a little, uh, creative writing. I, I certainly wasn't good at it, but I did used to like creative writing. Um, even now, I thoroughly enjoy writing papers, um, you know, which are, can be very dry and very technical, but there's something yeah. about crafting and editing and putting words together and really thinking about every word that you're using and making it count. That, that really floats my boat, I guess. You know, it's that kind of idea that everything you're communicating, even the smallest words are communicating something, and that to me is really interesting. Oh, I, I'm going to, if it's all right, I'm writing down, um, making every word count. That's something I want to come back to later. Right. <laughs> well, so I, I say that, I, I, well, now I've said that, I'm, I'm now sort of implying that I don't want to come back to it, later, so I'm going to bring it out now. Because I, I think that that's a level of depth that, in my experience, very few people kind of think to in terms of, you know, how can I make every word count? I know in, a, in an academic setting, in, in a research paper, you've often got like a word limit or you've got, a, you know, a particular message that you're trying to put across within that paper. Um, but the idea of making every word count, because I think often language is, is almost thought of as something that is wholly spontaneous in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm less sure it is wholly spontaneous. Not at all. I, I, I would thought... Um... One of the areas that I'm interested in is uh, the notion of formulaic language. This idea that actually we don't pick every single word on a one-by-one one basis, in, in casual conversation anyway. Mm. Um, and if you think about it, it, it starts to make sense in terms of the cognitive load that goes into producing language. 
We speak so quickly and so fluently that if you thought about how many words you actually had to pick per millisecond to make a fluent conversation, it would be an immense amount of words to choose. So right now I'm talking slower because I'm, I'm trying to be more meaningful and more careful in the words that I'm selecting. Mm-hmm. But if you think about a casual conversation, you can speak very, very quickly because quite often you're pulling out these formulate chunks of language, these sequences of words that allow you to stitch it all together in a more coherent way. So when, when you say like a, a chunk or a sequence of words, what... Um, can you give us an example of what you might of what that might be in, in everyday conversation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, so when you're talking about cliches and idioms, would be two really good examples. Those sorts of phrases that that you hear over and over again. So we quite often hear people talking about at the end of the day. So at the okay. end of the day, six six individual words, but the theory of formulaic language says you're not picking at and then the and then the end. You know, you're not picking them as single things and sticking them together in a meaningful sentence. You're pulling it together as one chunk. So by the time you said at the end of the day, you've bought yourself the thinking time to come up with your next word or your next sequence of words. So basically, when we talk about formulate language, we're talking about any of these cliches, these metaphors, these um, routinized phrases. So when you go into um, a conversational situation that, that you regularly engage with, like going to the supermarket or going to a shop, yeah. you might often hear, have a nice day at the end of it. Or you'll hear that's and then the amount of money. You know, th- these are these structures that we tend to use that, that and, become conventionalised for a particular routine. And do they then get conventionalised for routines within organisations? So, uh, so if I, if, so what I mean by that is, um, there was a, a client of mine who I spent a lot of time with, um, and um, they had a sort of like a certain st- set of phrases that they w- that would be used within the organisation. Um, and they they really bothered me, you know. Uh, you know, personal kind of emotion management strategies had to come into play because when they were used, it just would frustrate me because I don't think they uh, they they were used in a, such a ritual way that they didn't actually have the weight and meaning behind it. You know, so for example, if, if we ever talked, if there was ever a discussion about doing something new or different or a new project. It would, you know, the, somebody in the meeting nine times out of ten would go, "Well, can can we start with what good looks like?" Right. And then someone else would go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we absolutely we need to think about what good looks like." So, what good looks like and face into would two kind of almost stock things. So, if if somebody was coming up with an idea, you know, if I was a betting man, I I could get really good odds on the fact that I would hear what good looks like. And likewise, if somebody was expressing some frustration or disappointment with another with a colleague then the words face into would come out in terms of what well, you need to face into that would be the um, you know would, would be the structure mm-hmm. so is that, would they be examples of formulaic language as well absolutely so that, that formulaic at a smaller level so if you think of a phrase like at the end of the day that's something that the speech community that's that's pretty much all of us that are speaking the same language would be familiar familiar with yeah, okay. what you're talking about there are specific formulae that um, operate within a a closed group of people. So you can think about a lot of things like management speak, like um, I'm sure they're out of favour now, but things like pushing the envelope and blue sky thinking and those sorts of things that that you regularly come across that people just get so frustrated by hearing. Um, What was interesting about those examples that you gave about, uh, you know, what, what does good look like, I think was your example. Yeah. Other people then started to pick it up and use it as well. And I think yeah. what you've probably got going on there is a situation where somebody very senior within the organisation will have started using it. 
and those around them will have wanted to pick it up and internalise it and use it to signal their solidarity with that speaker. So that way of showing that, that you are part of the same group, that, that you want to belong to that particular group. So that's another marking things of these formulaic sequences. Is you're showing some kind of commitment or some kind of engagement with the people that you're talking to. If you were in that meeting and actively picked apart that formulaic sequence and said, that's a silly phrase or that doesn't mean what you think it means, you'd be signalling that you're not buying into to the, the ethos and the culture of that particular group. So in many ways, having those formulaic sequences shows our solidarity with one another. And that's why you can get them emerging within these closed groups that you might not hear outside of that organisation, let alone in another organisation. Um, but it's somehow showing that group solidarity. And it, uh, and it has both a, um, an inclusive and an exclusive feel about it. Absolutely. So I, I remember there was a, uh, I was part of a group that was studying, um, part of the MSC group that, where I, you know, through which I met you. Um, and I, can't, I cannot remember how it came into being. Um, but there was a there was a particular phrase that that would get used within that group, and and we would all know what it meant, um, and and the associated meaning that went behind it. But if you didn't understand it, that was almost a um, a signal of exclusivity because everyone around you would be laughing or um, engaging in you know, responding to that that particular thing, mm-hmm. um, which made which actually made no sense to anybody outside of that that world. You know so. It was all to do with memory and this, or the idea of schema, um, and the word schema fit very well in a football chant. You know, to do like schema, schema, <laughs> um, and, and that. That so, if, if anybody mentioned schema, either somebody would make that kind of football esque chant, or there would be like an eye contact that we made between different members of the group to to signify someone's just used that that thing that's part of our group. Um, so I guess it can be used both in an inclusive and an exclusive way as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, going back to management speak, that's a great example of exclusionary language, isn't it? You either understand what pushing the envelope means or you don't. You're either with it or you're not. And, and, and just like with a small group of, of MSc students getting together, you have something that marks you are all belonging together. You are an in-group. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand those formulaic sequences or you, you can't use them appropriately which is almost worse in some ways, is if you try and use it and don't use it in the way that the in-group does, then you have that exclusionary out-group effect going on. But I mean, there's so much within language that allows us to show our in-group solidarity. I mean, even at the level of accents, when you're around people that you, you like, you try to, to moderate your accents a little bit to show that the similarity between them, you use the same sorts of words as people. So at all levels of linguistics, you mark your in-group status and your out-group status through the way that you communicate with people. And, and within linguistics, then, do you take it beyond language? Do you start looking at the looking at things like um, language or um, other ways that the voice is used? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like any field of study. There are there are lots of things that some people do and lots of things that people don't. So I personally don't work with speech so much. Okay. Um, those that do work with speech would quite often take into account what we call the paralinguistic features, so features uh, of nonverbal communication like body language, facial expression, those sorts of things, gesticulations. Mm. Um, so it really depends what particular aspect of linguistics you're researching, but certainly within the realm of linguistics you would take into account those sorts of issues. Okay. So you just did an, an in-group, out-group kind of distinction there. So you said within, you know, the, there are some that research paralinguistics, but that's not for you. So what's your 
you know, where do you kind of focus then? Where do you specialise? Well, my specialisation is uh, forensic linguistics. And within that, it's within the written language. So that's, that's what I meant between the distinction between speech and, and, and writing. Yeah. Really. I, I work with written text. Okay. Uh, but my particular expertise is in the field of forensic linguistics, which is very basic, is, is looking at the intersection between language and law. So any sort of legal text or legal context or text that somehow becomes legally relevant is of interest to me. So when we talk about forensic linguistics, we can really break it down into three areas. Um, we can talk about the written language of the law. So that would be looking at things uh, like legal contracts. So how okay. comprehensible are they to people? Do they make sense? If you think about something like um, the police caution, quite often that's delivered to people um, on a Saturday night after they've been out drinking and perhaps they're in a state okay, of yeah. inebriation, you know, is it still comprehensible to somebody when they haven't got all of their faculties? Um, things like mobile phone contracts or when you sign up to Facebook or Twitter or any social media site, you're always presented with these terms and conditions that you have to accept. Can, can the average person actually penetrate them linguistically or are they written in a way that actually makes them inaccessible to them? So from that point of view, that aspect of forensic linguistics really deals with comprehensibility from the layperson's point of view. Second, would that, sorry. Oh, sorry, would that translate over as well into um, things like uh, employment contracts and that sort of thing then? Absolutely. So in terms of if, um, yeah, the, you know, either, either policies or procedures that people need to sign up to. So, you know, if I, if I made it topical, you know, an IT policy, because mm -hmm. yeah, within that there will be um, aspects around you know maintenance of software or computer or you know uh, access or supervision of a people's activity on um on it platforms would that include that sort of stuff as well absolutely because what you're doing at that point is you're making um you're entering into a contract aren't you it's a term of employment that you're, you're signing up to those uh those terms mm. so if you're saying to your employee you need to accept these terms in order for you to have the job is there a checking process to make sure that your employee actually understands those terms and conditions um you know there's lots of movements towards plain english trying to write in non-legalese so trying to avoid yeah. sort of latinate terms and legal terms that, that that actually carry a different meaning in a legal context than they might in an everyday context but you know we're a long way from people actually accepting legal language as uh, written in plain language plain english so yeah. I think that's definitely a, it's a strong area where more work could be done is ensuring that people are signing these contracts and understanding what they're agreeing to. Hmm. Okay, so you said the first area of forensic linguistics then is the intersection of language and law, and then I interrupted you, so second? Okay, so the second one, so that first one then was about the written language and law. Yep, sorry. Written legal language. And the second one would be more generally interaction in the legal process. So that's really thinking about how different groups of people uh, communicate within different legal settings. So one of the issues that becomes very salient here is a, a power differential. So if you think about how um, a witness is cross-examined during an adversarial trial, they're put under immense pressure. There are lots of linguistic constraints on what they're allowed to be, uh, sorry, what responses they're allowed to provide. Uh, mm -hmm. There are lots of tactics that barristers can use that will um, gets to a particular answer in a particular way. So they're really exerting this linguistic control and this linguistic influence over their, their witnesses. Now that becomes really significant if you're dealing with somebody who has already been um, victimised in, in perhaps the worst way if you think about sexual assault victims who then mm -hmm. have to go into a courtroom and be questioned in, in great detail about what's happened to them. 
there's an argument that actually they're re-victimised within the courtroom because they're asked to, to relive a particular crime that's happened to them. Quite often in cases of sexual assault, the issue comes down to whether the person who alleges sexual assault consented to it or not. And quite often it's a verbal linguistic battle between the issue of consent, did, did what was said mean consent, uh, and so on. Um, police interviews provide another fertile ground for, for looking at these sorts of power issues. You know, how, how free are you to actually exercise your rights when you're sat in a police cell and there's somebody in a uniform looking at you reading your rights to you? Or not necessarily in a uniform, but certainly in a power differential. So those are the sorts of issues that forensic linguists get interested in at that level, is looking at how people actually interact um, within legal settings. And of course, that can extend to a whole spectrum then. So it might even be things like um, beyond sentencing, beyond the courtroom, it might be looking at discourse within prisons. So how do prisoners communicate? How do they talk about crimes that they've committed? And, and how do they present their worldview of what happened to them? It might even extend to things like mediation meetings, between um, the victim and the, um, the perpetrator. So basically anything that's to do with the legal system at some level, it's looking at the interaction between the participants within it. And um, uh, if, you, if the answer to this question is, is I don't know, then, then that, that's okay. Are you aware of much research that happens around, say, things like employment tribunal or um, kind of within investigations within, a, within the workplace? To be honest, no. Um, it's not an area that, that I've seen a, a great deal. I, I certainly couldn't name something off the top of my head. I feel like there's something in the back of my mind, but I, I can't recall it. But certainly that would be an area where there'd be a great deal of research that could be done. Because it's one of those non-legal contexts, but with legal ramifications, I suppose, would be the way of looking at that one. Well, yeah, you know, and, and because if I think about everything, you know, everything, sorry, if I think about in particular, there's me making a linguistic slip. Um, <laughs> so if I, if I, or being linguistically um, uh, crude by saying everything and then picking on one particular thing. So if I think about what you talked about in particular around the power differential and, you know, you, you likened it to being in a police cell, you know, or in a police interrogation room with somebody in uniform stood over you. Likewise, though, if it's an investigation, internal investigation within an organisation, if, if you're you know, there as the accused or, the, or the, the, the accusee or the witness or whatever that is, you know, sat in a, in a meeting room, um, either, you know, that has got no glass around the outside of it because, you know, we're, so as, as HR practitioners, for example, some of the considerations they might make is if I have this meeting in a meeting room that's got lots of glass around it, how are other people from outside the room going to judge what's happening within it? Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a, there's a HR representative and or a line manager and or an investigative and or an investigator and or the individual all in a room. Mm -hmm. So you, you and rightly so, you need to think about those external um, factors that could affect what's happening within the interview. But likewise, you might therefore pick a, a meter room which has got no windows and is, is closed off. Yet still the um, the there's potential there for the for the power differential to to equally be at play mm -hmm. but just in a different way because whilst from a criminal or forensic setting if this doesn't go your way it could ruin your life in terms of you know you have a you get convicted and all the implications that could come with that but likewise from a workplace point of view it could ruin your reputation not just within your um within your current organization but within a market or a sector as well um 
So yeah, if, if I, 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 I'm like you, I can't think of any research off the top of my head, and I'm, I know I have a, a note to go and try and find some. But, <laughs> and of um, course, the, the important thing that, that ties into that as well, to do with the setting, is, is this idea that people quite often find themselves in a situation where they might be interrogating somebody, having read about the latest technique. You know, you'll know more about this than me, but but things like the read technique. Yeah. You know, going in and thinking, right, I can do this, I can do an interrogation, but without understanding the complexities of how we actually communicate. So already when you say to me that, that you might have a, uh, an, an employee in a closed room without windows in there, I'm already thinking about the context and what that's going to do to their communication pattern, whether they're guilty Absolutely. or not. And I think that's one of the difficulties is people going in and assuming that language is straightforward. I can go in and ask this question and I'll get that answer and that'll tell me whether they're guilty or not. But really there are so many different factors going on at any one moment that affect the linguistic choices we make and how we communicate those choices that actually you've really got to have a strong sensitivity of language if you're going to start relying on what people are saying and thinking about how they're saying it. And especially then when, um, and again, if I bring my kind of HR bias into it, um, the the weight that's then put on the, the written testimony, whether that be the, the, the notes taken one or the handwritten one that mm-hmm. comes off the back of that, you know, in terms of the... The, the weight that, that those statements have are huge, you know, in terms of the, the, the role that they'll have to play both within an, within an internal investigation, but then also potentially within, you know, within an employment tribunal as well. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, and you're right, if we don't think about those, those issues with language then, or how the, how the context and all what's happening can affect and shape language, it can make a massive, um, make a massive difference. Absolutely. Even at the level of producing that statement is, has the person been left to write it on their own or have they been prompted because this is going to form a, a written piece of evidence that they might be using the words that the investigator has helped them put together and in doing that they've put it in somebody else's words that might then become problematic at a later stage of the investigation so it's really thinking about all these issues and, and you know I'm not saying there's a right way or a wrong way but certainly to be aware of it and how it's put together is going to be significant but I think it's also being being aware of the <clears throat> um, oh, see, this is one of those moments where I risk getting on the soapbox. <laughs> I think one of the one of the challenges that we have is that. Um, so, if I think about my train, so uh, granted, I can't speak in, uh, across a whole profession, but if I think about the training that I've received from my profession about questioning techniques and approaches to interviews, whether they be. Uh, across the different types of interviews that a HR practitioner might do, whether that be recruitment or um, uh, you know, kind of for talent or succession planning or investigation or whatever that may be, um, you the the training that I've received is, is quite um, I can't think of a better word than crude in terms of you know, the, the, for example, it's about open questions and closed questions or probing questions, and maybe there's a funnel. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, in terms of the uh, things like the language that you use within your question mm-hmm. and or presuppositions that are included within your questions and, and how they can, you know, and the way that the question is delivered and the order in which the questions are delivered and all of that sort of things, that, that, that just has never featured. It's something I know through part of the other work that I do yeah. um, and that I've gone to find. But I would argue for the vast majority of facial practitioners, you know, they, there's very, they don't think as deeply as that around yeah, the, the way that questions, for example, are, are put together and formulated, and then the priming effect they have on Absolutely. the responses that you get back. And I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the Elizabeth Loftus uh, 
study it, you know, this use of a different verb is going to affect mm. perception of what actually happened. So in that particular paper, she looked at participants who were shown a, a clip of um, a car crashing into another car. And then she said to them, um, you know, how fast was the car going when it crashed? Uh, uh, to another group of people, she asked how, fa- how fast was the car going when it collided? How fast was the car going when it bumped? And each time the verb was getting a, a, an average different speed uh, from from the from the participants who viewed the video. So even the words that you're using are priming how people perceive what they've witnessed, even though they were watching the same video, they were perceiving it traveling at different speeds because of the verb that had been used. So I think absolutely. you're absolutely right saying it's not just a case of is it an open question or, or a closed question or a probing question. It's all these other sorts of issues that go into language that have a big effect on how people perceive something. Yeah, and and, and I know I'm using this question question in isolation, but a question like how many times has x done y mm-hmm. you know within just within that it, it presupposes that x has done y absolutely yeah you know it's the classic it, example um how many times did you beat your wife yeah it, it presumes that, that that you did beat your wife in the first place it's exactly that presumptive language that can be problematic mm. and and it, uh, yeah 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 i think it poses massive um massive challenges and and risks to mm. um just to, to to some of the stuff, the, some of the investigations that happen both in a forensic setting um, and, and outside. So just picking up on that theme in terms of sort of the the awareness of, of language of interviewers. Then, mm-hmm. so in your in your setting, in a forensic setting, um, is is that is that still present and prevalent within 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 forensics? Do you think? In, in what regard? Sorry. The... So do. Um, some of the challenges around um, the way that people ask questions, or uh, so we've we've established that yes, they, the the way you ask questions and the language that you use will prime and have an effect on the responses that you get. Mm-hmm. In terms of the practice, uh, you know, of so w- from what you see in either the research that you do or the research that you read, um, our our practitioners in forensic settings aware of that some of these mm-hmm. challenges and do they modify their behaviour accordingly? I think. It's one of those areas I don't necessarily work closely with police interviewers myself, so I wouldn't want to to generalise beyond that. But from colleagues mm. who do work with police officers, there is definitely a willingness, certainly within um, England and Wales and Scotland, to really develop good practice over interviewing. Um, so I, I've got colleagues who do work very closely with the police and they seem very engaged with it and want to learn more and ensure that they are collecting the best evidence at every stage. But of course, that's the, there's a big culture um, an institutional culture about how to give an interview. So mm. quite often people are fighting against, or, or rather researchers are, are, are trying to encourage people to see another way of carrying out an interview. There's also going to be cultural issues. So just because England, Wales and Scotland are very receptive to this doesn't mean that every territory and every country is going to be receptive to it. So there is a great variation in practice, but certainly from what I'm aware of within my closed group of colleagues is that actually, yes, there is a willingness to, to make sure that interviews are carried out sufficiently well. It's in everybody's best interest because, first of all, the pursuit of justice is important, whether that person is, is guilty of the crime or not. Um, but secondly, they need the best evidence because if they're going to go to court and prosecute, they need to make sure that that evidence isn't flawed. So it's in everybody's best interest to make sure that they're aware of the linguistic issues and that they take it on board and try and formulate the most effective interview they can. OK, thank you, Sam. Um, all right, so so we've talked about the um, two different ways or the two different aspects that forensic linguists 
dicks applies, whether that be at the intersection of language and law. Um, and then the second, I can't remember how you paraphrased it earlier on. Uh, interaction in the legal process. That was it. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, so in terms of your research then, so over, I guess over time, your research interests have, have changed. Would that be um, I, have developed? Developed, I think, is the natural trajectory. Yeah, I think you, you start off in one area and find yourself moving towards others. Yeah. Okay. And formulaic language, is that where you start? Was that kind of your first, is that where you began? Where your interests, where your research interests started from? Uh, no, backwards, really. I mean, my research interest started in uh, forensic linguistics. Okay. Um, and particularly in the third area of forensic linguistics, which I haven't yet mentioned, which is expert witnesses. So this okay. idea of going into the courtroom or helping the police solve a crime that's been committed through language. Yeah. So my passion really started out with um, one of those particular crimes, which is authorship analysis. Okay. So this might be um, the police get in touch and say they've received um, a threat letter or some blackmail and they've got no idea who's written it. And so they might ask a linguist to try and profile a likely person, you know, what sorts of things can be said about the age, the gender, socioeconomic status of this writer that might help them narrow down their list of suspects. Mm. Um, or a case I've worked on, um, the police had arrested a man who had a terrorist manifesto in his, um, or on his, on his computer, and they needed to know whether he'd written it or not, because obviously it's a very different crime if he's the author of it. Okay. Um, and so in that case, there was a closed list of suspects, if you like. It was a case of comparing his known writings with the terrorist manifesto to see whether he was likely to have authored it or not. Mm. Um, but within that realm, then, there's also other areas like deception detection is becoming increasingly studied from a linguistic point of view. Looking at things like trademarks, so looking at trademark law, which rests on how similar trademarks are phonetically and semantically. So in other words, do they sound the same? Do they mean the same? Uh, that's another area that's quite interesting for forensic linguists. Even looking at um, language analysis for determination of origin. So some countries will take asylum seekers and give them linguistic tests to see if their pattern of language falls in line with what's expected from them if they claim if they came from the country that they said they've come from. Oh, that's wow. a very controversial area uh, within forensic linguistics. It's not one that's accepted by everybody, but it's another example of have something seemingly obvious like your the way that you speak can be used as evidence um, to either grant or not asylum. So going back to your earlier question then, so my original research interests are in authorship analysis. I'm really interested in the way that different people write and the way that they write consistently over a series of different texts and whether that is sufficient to enable them to be matched as the likely author of a criminal text. So in, in being interested in that and getting into that area, um, the theory of formulaic language was something I came across and it started to really make sense to me. Mm. It made sense because um, there's a famous case from America, I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, the Unibomb investigation. Okay, yeah. And it was, a, it was a, a terrorism, it was at the time the largest terrorist case from the, the late 1970s, um, which went on for about 20 years almost, where a man was sending bombs, he sent a total of 16 bombs to different university employees and different airline employees. And after 16, uh, 16 bombs were sent, he sent this manuscript, which was basically an outline of his ideological positions, his arguments for why he was targeting this, what was wrong with society, how it needed to change. And in there were, was a particular phrase, you can't eat your cake and have it too. 
If okay. you think about, we're talking about formulaic language, we, we yeah, have to say you can't have your cake and eat it. That's a break from the pattern. Say again? That's a, almost a break from the pattern. Absolutely, yeah. Well, the verbs are transposed, aren't they? You can't eat your cake and have it. And it actually makes sense that way when you put the verbs that way around. There's a logic to it. Mm. And it's, it's the sort of phrase that's historically correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. I believe if you look at the etymology of that phrase, th that was historically the right way of doing it. It's just that we don't say it that way anymore. Um, so from my point of view, from my research point of view, I became really interested in this idea that this is a man who was evading detection. He didn't want to be caught. So why would he use a phrase that was so distinctive to him that enabled him to be identified? Because what had happened was um, he'd used this phrase in some of his other texts as well. Okay. And so it started to become a phrase that he was using that was really quite marked for him, quite distinctive. And so I argued in, in my early research, my PhD research, that this was probably a formulaic phrase, a formulaic phrase for him as an individual. And because it was formulaic, he probably wasn't aware of just how distinctive, how marked it was from a linguistic point of view. And so that really got me interested in this idea that actually we all have these formulaic phrases and you gave the example earlier about the one that you used as a group of students but we yeah. have them at an individual level as well mm -hmm. i don't know if you're ever one of those mean students who um every time your lecturer says a word you make a drinking game out of it that kind of thing <laughs> you become very aware uh, if you're reading uh, some some fiction you'll notice there are certain words that start to be patterned that start to stick out and so this idea of, of individual, what we call idiolect, this idea that we have our own individual version of the language, really started to interest me. So my research really starts to explore this notion of formulaic language and how it might be used at the individual level. So I find that fascinating for, for a number of different reasons. Um, so partly you know, I, I'm now thinking, what's my idiolect? What, <laughs> what, you know, what, what are some of my formulaic phrases that I have? Um, but also, in terms of the the almost un uh, how unaware the individual, you know, in the Unabomber case, may have been about the use of that phrase, mm -hmm. um, because as, I guess as we were talking towards the beginning, you know, often there's there may be little thought that goes into the language that we use. Yeah, and you you said earlier on you specialise in, in written text. Do you find, is there a difference in formulaic language in speech versus written? It's an interesting question that I don't think there's a definitive answer to that. Certainly in speech, you would expect to find more formulaic sequences because you don't have the planning time that you have when you're writing. Okay. So if I'm writing an email, I can take my time, I can go back, I can edit it. That's, that's the value of written languages, that it's, it's more permanent spoken language because we have to produce it quickly we have to produce it fluently you expect to find more formulaic sequences within there um, as a way to keep the conversation going in terms of the types of formulaic sequences that are used i would expect some variation in terms of there are formulaic sequences that we use as discourse markers to keep the conversation going but then there are some that occur in written language as well so you might find some difference between them but I think it's really the overall proportion that's likely to differ. I think we'd find more in spoken language than in written language. Okay. So it's not necessarily about the, the, the type, it's about the, um, the frequency that it would occur. Yeah. And what's, what I found interesting in, in my research is when I've looked at different authors and their use of formulaic sequences, I found that actually that there is no specific formulaic sequence, with the exception of one author out of 20 
the 20 authors that I studied didn't have a particular formulaic sequence that they used, with the exception of one who kept using in a way. And she used in a way that was a, high, a far higher frequency than any other author. And she used it consistently over a whole sequence of texts. So that allows me to argue that it's formulaic for her because she's using it regularly across different texts. Okay. But that didn't happen for any of the other 19 authors that I studied. But what I did find was the overall proportion of formulaic language that they were using did vary dramatically. So in other words, some authors were more formulaic than others. Others used what we call more novel language, so they're creating more of these novel constructions rather than drawing on this formulaic language. What I don't yet know is what explains that difference in formulaicity. Is it just a natural correlate of of the way that we use language or the way that we've acquired language? Or can we relate it to some kind of sociolinguistic variable? So an obvious one to investigate would be um, intelligence level, as controversial as that is in itself. You know, is there a connection between IQ level and the level of formulaicity? And that's that's really the direction that my my research is going to go in the future. So moving beyond forensics in some regards, but then feeding back into it because it would be a good profiling tool if you had a text and you didn't know who'd authored authored it and then had a look at all the formulate language in it, you might then start to build up a picture of their likely IQ level or socioeconomic status, those sorts of things that affect language. If we can find a correlation between that and formulate sequences, that could be quite useful. It's fascinating. Am I blowing your mind, Phil? Yeah, no, well, you, well, you, you regularly do, Sam, when you're in that <laughs> chat. Um, and, and in terms of kind of how... So how do you go about this then? So that this type of analysis that you're doing, how do you go about it? Where does that, you know, where, where do you, is it through, through the use of technology or how do you go about that analysis? It's, it's very, very difficult to identify formulate language because it's the sort of thing that once you're aware of it, you can recognise it. You have this in- intuition of, of, of what is formulaic. But when you actually start to identify it in text, it becomes very problematic because you realise that you cannot do analysis based on your intuition. And certainly not if you're using it for a forensic purpose where you need a a valid and reliable method. You you can't just pick things and say, that sounds formulaic to me. So the approach I adopt is to build um, a dictionary of formulaic language, which basically involved going to a whole series of of hundreds of websites, looking at different types of cliches, different types of idioms, different types of everyday sayings that are typically used for teaching English to um, people who don't have English as a first language. Because that's another feature of formulaic language is that if you want to sound like a native speaker of English, you need to drop in the idiomatic language. That's, That's what shows you to be a competent language user. Okay. So I was using a lot of these materials to build a reference list of uh, about 13,500 formulaic sequences. And at that point, it became a, a, a computational exercise in searching the texts for those different formulaic sequences, so seeing which ones are actually picked out, how regularly they occur. And that allows you to then derive a measure of how much of the language is formulaic versus non-formulaic. So it's, wow. it's, it's, it's a difficult method to use because... There's nothing to say that every single formulate language or every single sequence that could be formulaic would be in my dictionary. You know, I can quite often go through the text and say, well, intuitively, I would have seen that to be formulaic, but it wasn't identified as so. But at the same time, when you have a large list like that, you've at least got resilience. You've got the consensus from all the people that wrote those different websites about they considered it to be formulaic rather than it just being one person's intuition. So it's, it's a difficult method, but it's one that seems to be working so far. I'm not sure if it's robust enough that I'd want to go into a courtroom and use it. Well, I'm, I'm hedging that. I certainly wouldn't at this stage because the research hasn't yeah. developed enough. In future, yeah. if it was shown that there was a big difference between individuals using formulate language, 
I still think that method needs refining more before it would be admissible within a courtroom. Um, but it's 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 opened up some interesting opportunities and interesting ways to look at formulaic language. I think. Yeah. And and if if yeah, so the the title of this podcast is is emotion at work. Yeah. You know, so so you're thinking about the the workplace in particular. So in ter- from from what you've from the research that you've done or, and all the knowledge that you have around formulaic language, as an example. What do you think are some of the applications across into the workplace, or how could it? Yeah, you know, what could be some of the links into the into the workplace that some of our listeners could could start to to think about or be aware of? Well, one of the things that strikes me that might be relevant would be in how we perceive formulaic language. Okay. So, um, quite often we can get very irritated by it. So I've mentioned there that some authors are more formulaic than other authors in terms of the overall proportion. It can be incredibly irritating if you're talking to somebody who who regularly uses cliches. We all use them, they're they're for all of us, but some people use them more than others and it can be irritating for some people. Okay. Um, So I I think one area to think about is is how are you communicating with people? How are you communicating your written materials? How are you communicating when you're talking to, to partners and potential customers? Are you using this sort of language that perhaps doesn't carry the gravitas? or you're overusing it to the extent that it might be negatively impacting on, on how people are perceiving you. Okay. Could be one area that I'd be interested uh, to explore. Mm. Um, I think another area that I'm starting to research in is looking at um, deception detection. So one area, uh, or the research suggests that when you're being deceptive, your cognitive load increases because yeah. you've got so much work going on to try and maintain the lie, to monitor the person that you're lying to, to see whether you're fooling them or not. And one of the things with formulaic languages, as I've said several times now, is that it makes it easier to communicate. It makes it more fluent to put conversation together. So in other words, it's reducing cognitive load. And so the research I'm looking at at the moment hypothesizes that when people are lying, they should be using formulaic language more as a coping mechanism. Okay. And so again, I think there are applications there in terms of interviews, you know, are people using formulaic language more so than they normally would? And that becomes important because obviously you need to know what the baseline for somebody's language use is before you start saying there's a lot of formulaic language in there. Mm. So I think there's, there's some interesting applications to come from using formulaic language. Do, do they sort of hit the mark for? for yeah, absolutely. For yeah, and 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 sorry, my, my pause is because my mind is now running with different thoughts. So one of those is you know, the idea that your um, that formulaic language could be a credibility enhancer or a credibility threatener, mm-hmm. depending on its. And I, you know, as always, you know, I, I talk about context, so context is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so with, within a particular context, formulaic language could, um, or overuse or underuse, I suppose, in a way, mm-hmm. could could either limit or enhance your credibility one way or another. Absolutely. So if you know, if if you are in, you know, if in an attempt to fit in. You roll out all the stock phrases within a within a short period of time. Mm. Whilst you're trying to show affinity and inclusion within the group, its its overuse could be interpreted as a um, um, you know whilst it's being attempted to be a mark of inclusion, actually could be a mark of exclusion. Potentially, um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, it comes down to that making sure that that you have the buy-in to use them. So, particularly at these. Um, within group rather than the wider language community level thinking about within yeah. an organization perhaps yeah. you have to earn the the symbolic right to use these sorts of phrases you know if, if i what was the example you gave earlier the use of schema 
yeah, 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 you wouldn't be able to use that. If I started yeah. doing that with you straight away, you'd be angry about it. You wouldn't be happy because I haven't earned the right to be part of your group. Yeah. And simply using that phrase isn't in itself going to buy me membership. Yeah. It's almost the reward for being a member that you get to use that phrase. So having that sensitivity and that awareness of how you use it. Then again, think about when we sit in professional meetings and we can hear the um, the chair of the committee that we're sitting on using these phrases like push the envelope and blue sky thinking and so on. You kind of have to mirror them back to show that you're on board with it and that, that you're a credible member of the team. Even if it's the first time you've ever heard it, you've just got to be sure you're using it right. So it's thinking about all those sorts of issues, you know, what, what are the, the cultural, uh, you know, you're within organisation formulate sequences and how are they used by people? Are they used to, to push the agenda, to push the change, or are they used to mark in-group and exclusive kind of boundaries? And so earlier on you talked about idiolect, so with that... Um, would what we're talking about now and, and the use of these different sort of phrases and sayings within a particular context, are we getting into sociolect type stuff? Then? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, your sociolect is the language that marks out some kind of social characteristic about you. So the argument that men and women have different types of language or your language changes based on your age or your socioeconomic class. Um, so they're marking out social characteristics about you. Um, what we're really talking about when we talk about within uh, businesses, within organisations, is not so yeah. much socio-elect as a community of practice. So in other words, you're okay. all buying into sharing this same language that within your organisation is familiar to you, that marks you out as being, as using that particular form of language, marks you out as belonging to the same organisation. So yeah. you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear it outside that organisation. And again, from an HR perspective, one of the things that can be very problematic is when you're using the sorts of language that forms a community of practice with people outside your organisation, because suddenly you're using language that's impenetrable from somebody on the outside. If you have mm -hmm. phrases that you use on the inside that are regularly used that everybody within your organisation uses, you need to be mindful not to use them externally because you're alienating customers or partners or whoever you're working with because they won't have access to that inside knowledge. They're not part of your community of practice. Yeah. And I guess that can apply to you know, both kind of <coughs> visitors and, and, and guests to Absolutely. meetings, or um, but also to new recruits. I would imagine so Definitely. people that you know are joining an organisation, then um, yeah, they, they could be almost bewildered by um, yeah, by what's the, by the phrases or languages that are being used. Absolutely, I um, I work at Manchester Metropolitan University, and on the first day, I got given a glossary of terms that are commonly used in meetings. And actually, the idea behind it was, was incredibly impressive. It was, it was to make you feel like part of the team, that you weren't always having to feel left out. But sadly, mm. they limited themselves to just the initialisms and the, the acronyms. And I think that there could be scope for this wider sense of formulaic sequences. What are the terms that we use, you know, the phrases we use rather than just the acronyms? Um, and I think there's a real scope for, for quickly embedding um, this inclusionary language getting people inducted very quickly into how you talk within your community of practice so that, that person feels valued and, and up to speed very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm part of a community who, who hosts a, a number of different kind of Twitter chats regularly. So we have two, we have two a week. Um, so the, the community is called L&D Connects and it's a, you know, a load of different practitioners, some, some freelance like me and others that are working within organisations. And we all kind of collaborate to to curate and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for to, or to arrange and to kind of monitor those chats as they happen mm -hmm. and one of the discussions that we were having as a, as a community outside of it was 
you know, are there are there in gags? Are there are there in you know within within group um, things that happen or that we discuss that that run the risk of excluding others? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the example, one of those examples used was the one I used earlier on about contexts. You know, so yes. it, it's, if if I'm not taking part in a Twitter chat and somebody mentions context, it's incredibly common for me to get a tweet saying, ha ha, Phil, so-and-so beat you to the mention of context today. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, because, the, but not only has that become part of my, you know, so in a way that's part of my idiolect, or it's, it's, you know, and, but it's also part of that community of practice mm. um, kind of uh, approach as well. So the discussion that's happening sort of kind of behind the scenes was, do, do we need some sort of, um, I can't remember what we called it, it wasn't a glossary, but you know, some kind of, you know, here's some useful things. To, if you want to take part in these chats, here's some useful things to know. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that might help you navigate your way through it. And I remember being kind of pulled in two different ways in terms of part of me was like, you know, I, I get the, the need, uh, not the need, I get the, the value that could be derived from the individuals for that. Mm-hmm. But also, do we want to have that much of, do we want to have that much structure um, around what is essentially a group of people coming together just to have a chat on Twitter? Mm. You know, and, and I remember sort of very much being pulled in two very different directions on that one. So a part of me was like, yeah, I understand it. But the other part of me was like, oh, I don't want to overcook it. I don't want to, you know, put, you know, to say, if you want to come and join this chat, here's the thing you need to read before you do because it's going to give you all the stuff. I was like, do we need yeah. to do that? Is that really necessary? And it, I um, guess there's also a dimension there as well that if you were marked as an in-group, if you, if you all have that insider joke, it defeats the object of having the insider joke if you're then going to share it with everybody and make sure that everybody has access to it because you've you've delineated those boundaries that you've set up, those social mm. boundaries. I gave the example at, at the very start, we were talking about the written language of the law and I said there's yeah. a, a movement towards plain language, plain English. And a lot of that is resisted simply because lawyers like legal language. Yeah. It marks them out as having the education. It marks them out as, as almost demonstrating their worth within the profession. If everybody can access legal language easily, mm. it, it, it kind of takes away the prestige and the esteem that, that surrounds it. And I think there are those, those psychological issues that go with it. You know, we all talk about wanting to be inclusionary, but at the same time, we get social benefit from having in-groups uh, and out-groups. And what do you think... Um, so we, we talked about the, the language aspects a lot, and we linked it into, into credibility. We also talked about deception and deception detection. You know, and is there you know, the potential around there being something um, uh, in the use of formulaic language more, potentially, mm-hmm. in, uh, in deception? Well, but we haven't really talked explicitly, I suppose, much in around the, the link between some of this, some of the some of linguistics and formulaic language and emotion. Um, and what do you see? You know, how, how do you, yeah, how do you see emotion and or um, some of the things that we've been talking about? How do you see them kind of coming together? It's a really interesting question, and I say that that's the academic way of saying I don't know. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's been no research that's looked at a correlation between formulate language and emotion. It just doesn't exist as far as I'm aware. So I don't know what would happen. Mm. I suspect what we'd be thinking about is what the emotion is doing at a cognitive level and whether that's likely to have an effect, but also the, the impact of context. So who you're being emotional around. Um, are you maintaining those professional boundaries or are you, you know, the way that you're emotional with a best friend is going to be very different to how you're emotional around a co-worker, presumably. 
Okay. Um, but also that, that bigger issue, I think, about the fact that we seem to be using formulate language differently or to different proportions makes it very difficult to generalise about how it's going to be used in relation to emotion, because I suspect we're not going to be able to see people using it in the same sorts of way, in the same sorts of situations. If you are a naturally formulaic person, then you're likely to see a lot of formulaicity in your emotional talk. If you have a propensity towards more novel language, more novel constructions, it may be that there'd be an increase in, in formulaic language, but we'd have to really think about why that was, what was going on that would cause that increase. So the straightforward answer, I guess, is no, I don't know. Yeah, and um, and, and that's okay. I like, you know, it's okay, <laughs> it's okay to not know. Um, uh, I, the, the part of me wonders whether, um, and, and this is very much experiential, so I, I have no research, um, no, no peer-reviewed research to support this, but part of me wonders whether formulate language is used as a way of expressing emotion in the workplace in um in inverted commas a professional way mm. so um you know earlier on i used the example of face into um and part of me wonders if if that is a it's used in a formulaic way to because the, the context around that phrase sorry let me let me start again so the context around that phrase typically is um you're you're talking about something happening or somebody having done something that you find frustrating or, or annoying or disappointing and so on. So something's happened where another individual, maybe a colleague, maybe a, 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 a like a somebody that you manage, or it could be a, a manager of some description. Mm-hmm. But often, you know, something's happened where it's a, it's negative. It's affected you in a way that has caused you to has triggered an emotional response. Mm-hmm. And then the, the context in which that that phrase is used then is is, a, is an instruction to tell you to go and talk to that person about it, um, and it, it comes with almost an implication that you haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. You know why why are you moaning to me when you haven't gone spoken when you haven't gone and spoken to to the individual concerned, mm-hmm. and also that you uh, uh, I guess again an implication of you you need to um, and there's lots of <laughs> My hesitation is because like, my head is full of things like you need to man up or you need to. Um, and so I'm realising that I'm using formulaic language to explain <laughs> formulaic language, and there's just like this metacognition thing going <laughs> in my head at the minute. Um, but do yeah, so I suppose to try and pull that together. Then uh, do we? I wonder if do we use them as a way of doing emotion work in terms of signifying how we feel about something yeah. without, um, but in a socially acceptable way because it's a phrase that's often used within the organisation. Does yeah. that even make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. I think it does, yeah. I think it it probably also links with um, there being an ind- individual use of formulaicity. So when we're talking about formulate language, we tend to use it in a way that if we're performing a routine, we find a good way of communicating that routine linguistically. And if it works for us, we use it over and over again, so it becomes formulaic. Okay. So if you're in a, let's say, a managerial position, and it's not uncommon for you to have to deal with an employee who has had a dispute with another employee... Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, it's a situation that regularly occurs for you. You might well find that, that that person, that manager, is using the same stock phrases, the same formulaic phrases, to try and deal with the situation. So your example there about you've got to man up would yeah. be a good way of, of giving advice that's, that's really, I guess, non-committal and, and very opaque in terms of not actually meaning anything. 
but somehow looking like you've given some kind of response. And so if that person goes away, whether they're disgruntled or satisfied with that response, the, the manager might start thinking, OK, that has worked. For, I'm not saying it's a, uh, an overt cognitive process, but the next time it happens, they might think, well, last time I said you need to man up and it, it worked for me. So yeah. that phrase then becomes formulaic for them in terms of how to deal with that particular situation. So I think you might find, yes, there may be some formulaic sequences that come out at the emotional level in a more general term, but I think you might find them at the individual level as well and how people actually deal with that emotion, how they communicate mm -hmm. that emotion or their response to that emotion. Okay. But again, I would say that's speculation. That, that's not... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay. <clears throat> Um, and what about sort of current, um, what, what's your current research? What are you researching at the moment? So at the moment, I'm really working on this idea of formulaic language, how it relates to different forensic contexts. So I'm still carrying on with the authorship side of it, trying to work out some of those different variables that affect formulaic language usage. And I'm also looking at deception detection in terms of whether this might be a new cue to detecting whether somebody has been deceitful or not. Um, but tied but it's kind of separate from those issues. I've now got a third strand of research that I'm interested in, which mm. I, I suspect this may not be so relevant to, to the HR context. But I'm particularly interested in the way that um, children and young people disclose that they've been sexually abused. Oh, wow. So here I'm thinking about a forensic context where a child is making an accusation that they have been abused by somebody. How do they actually communicate that? There's a lot of research that's looked at... Um, the barriers that children face to disclosing, so the sorts of social issues that would stop them from, from making a disclosure. And there's lots of acknowledgement that children struggle to communicate the sensitivities surrounding what's happened to them, particularly with the, the psychological guilt that they often feel, you know, it's somehow their fault that they've been abused. Mm. So what I really want to know is how are they actually making that disclosure? How are they actually saying to somebody that they have been sexually abused so that, so that a trusted adult can, can recognise that they have been disclosed too. Quite often children will try to disclose, but because they haven't got the linguistic skill to actually make that disclosure overt, quite often a trusted advert will miss the fact that they've been disclosed to, just, just not recognise that that is what the child was trying to communicate to them. So really, I, I, I'm getting really interested in this idea of language and sexual assault, and, and particularly a child's perspective of how they disclose it with a view to if we can develop some kind of typology of the sorts of characteristics that might be used by a child when they're disclosing that they've been abused, um, hopefully leading to more effective intervention strategies, more readily recognising that a disclosure has been made, or conversely, assisting the child in making that disclosure, you know, by recognising that the child yeah. may be going down that road, may be trying to disclose what strategies, how can we use language to help them make that disclosure more clearly and more quickly. So that's, I would say, an unrelated area of research, but one that, that I feel very passionate about. And I think that, for me, really sums up the importance of forensic linguistics, because I think if you speak to any forensic linguist, our key goal is to make some kind of positive change within, within the legal system. We're really advocating for different groups to have equality um, within, within the, the civil and criminal justice systems. And so, real, so here, really, I'm advocating for those children and young people that, that can't quite explain that they have been sexually abused and when they finally build up the courage to say that they may not be being understood wow that's amazing sam now what would be really amazing is the formulaic link the formulaic language links to that but i suspect it won't <laughs> <laughs> wow a uh, 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 truly commendable 
um, third addition to your to your research strand though. That's brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so um, one of the things that we ask all the guests that come on is any um, any recommendations in terms of books, articles, videos, films, anything like that. So in terms of um, you know, thinking about your specialisms, and any recommendations for where people might want to go to find out more if, if the listeners wanted to do that? Sure. I mean, thinking about uh, from a non-academic point of view, sort of more accessible kind of texts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some great books out at the moment. There's, there's one that's recently released by Ben Black called Nabokov's Favourite Word is Mauve. So he, he's a journalist, so it's, it's not an academic treatment, but it gives a real insight into um, the sorts of questions a forensic linguist might ask of a text. So it's really taking a stylometric approach to, to language and looking at the ways that language varies between different authors, uh, typically fiction writers. So can you tell whether an author is male or female based on the words that they're using or how does it relate to idiolect and those sorts of things? So that's quite a nice, very gentle introduction to the sorts of questions we ask. Um, another really good uh, forensic book is by John Olson and it's called Word Crime. And again, it's okay. a very accessible, non-academic one, but it really just takes you through a whole series of cases that he's worked on as a consultant. And I think it just nicely illustrates the whole spectrum of things that a forensic linguist might work on, and that might give some ideas about areas how that could fit into an HR context, the sorts of problems that, that HR managers might face and how a forensic linguist might be used to help them out with that. Okay. Um, Roger Shai is also a big name, uh, one of the founding fathers of Forensic Linguistics, in fact, and he's got two books that I would recommend, one called Creating Language Crimes, and again, that's based on um, his experience as a, an expert consultant, and another okay. one called The Language of Confession, Interrogation and Deception, and that really starts to look at, at issues of police interviews, police interrogations, how confessions are made, how, uh, how deception is played out from a linguistic point of view, and I think that's quite a nice compliment particularly for those who are familiar with that sort of material from a psychological point of view. Okay. Um, there's always some great articles and things. I could send you a list if that's easier, actually. Yeah, that'd be good. And then I could put them in the show notes. That'd be great if that's yeah, okay. no problem. Yeah, yeah that'd be fab. And I'll, um, I'll put links into all the to all of those books as well. Um, and you've also just added to my reading list as well. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not sorry, really. <laughs> Still the teacher in me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um... All right, uh, I've, it's been a, so it's been uh, just over an hour, I think, and I just looked at my um, recording and thought, "Wow, we've been talking for an hour." <laughs> um, so, is there um, anything else then, Sam? Anything else that you're thinking, feeling? Anything else that you wanted to, that you think you want to say? I guess one thing I probably haven't stressed enough is that we've talked about the importance of being sensitive to language, and my experience of I've been teaching forensic linguistics for ten years now. And I can pretty much guarantee that every year I'll have a student who tries and solves a crime based on um, a couple of hours or effectively a term's worth of input. And I guess it's just important to point out that being a forensic linguist requires you to be a skilled linguist. You're just applying it to legal contexts. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just wouldn't want people to think they can look at a text and notice something and build a case around it without really considering the wider linguistic issues. So I guess in those instances, I'd really encourage people to to be aware that language is a useful thing, uh, a useful tool from a forensic point of view, but to seek the appropriate ad- advice um, if you think it's worth pursuing rather than trying to do it on your own. You know, we talked earlier about having sort of HR interviews with people who don't necessarily know what they're doing or they've read the latest yeah. pop psychology book. I think it's great to be aware of forensic linguistics, but don't, don't assume you can do it straight away. 
Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, and part of what I want to do with this podcast series is is introduce um, listeners to both topics, people, and approaches that I think are really interesting um, and have merit um, yeah. for consideration in in, in our field. Um, and, and agree with you completely that you know the uh, awareness and um, applicability, you know, and expertise then are three quite very different things sure. um, and the intention is to yeah I, I guess make raise, raise some of that awareness around things that are out there and um, practices and approaches that have a really strong evidence base behind them that can be helpful and useful for them in their in their practice absolutely um, yeah. but there's a lot of there's a lot of um, time effort energy and so on that goes into into being able to, to do that and do that well mm. okay wonderful all right, all that's left to do then is to say a huge thank you. So thank you very much. Um, oh, actually, no, if people if some people did want to get in touch with you, Sam, how what would be uh, a good way to, to find you or, or to do that? So if somebody did want to find out more, um, how would how would be an appropriate way for somebody to make contact with you if they wanted to do that? Uh, that'd be great. I'd love to hear from people. So um, I work at Manchester Metropolitan University, and I okay. guess my email address is the best thing to provide people, uh, which would be s.lana at mmu.ac.uk wonderful thank you so huge thanks then thank you very much sam for, for taking the time to, to join us today um i know you're you're in the midst of doing some research at the moment so i, re- I greatly appreciate your uh, your time to come and join us on the emotion at work podcast thank you for having me it's uh, been great to just talk about myself for an hour <laughs> <laughs> wonderful thanks very much sam cheers well take care bye been listening to the emotion at work podcast written recorded and presented by phil wilcox edited together by simon leverton you can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on twitter at, at phil wilcox thanks for listening